and welcome to Media Democracy. It's a podcast about the media, politics and the politics of the media. I'm joined as ever by my co-host Tom Mills. Hey everyone. And my name is Dan Hind. You can find us both on Twitter. Um, we are back and we are back in a post-News Eve, post-election mood. Tom, how was your Christmas holiday? Uh, yeah, it wasn't really much of a holiday had a few days off you know I quite like Christmas it's all right you know did some family stuff then got back to a bit of work uh didn't do much for New Year um it's Not been a it's been a month of hangovers hasn't it of, of different types literal and figurative so we're certainly yeah. struggling I think with a bit of a political hangover I mean some of our listeners won't know but you Tom you're a little bit of a foodie aren't you were you <laughs> there any particular triumphs on the on the on the you know like I didn't I was so busy before Christmas, like normally before I have like the family one, as in with my family or or my other half's family, um, I usually do like a, a very chefy one at home, almost like a pre-Christmas dinner, involving all kinds of um, exciting innovations, which I didn't do this year. Um, I can't remember if I was too busy or just what happened, really. So sadly, that didn't happen. And then if you go to someone else's house, like people just don't appreciate you jumping in with your... Um, you know, with your really ideas. Ways, oh, so yeah. basically, all, all of my all of my current innovations, if I ever go to my parents' house with my brothers and sisters and, and various other members of my family, um, they get immediately vetoed in favour of a very sad traditionalism of uh, of turkey and 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 just your bog standard Christmas lunch. But it was very good, you know. I just chopped some onions. I was kind of like, um, this is probably very boring for listeners. <laughs> I was, <laughs> I was just a soldier in the kitchen, Dan, just following you were orders, a kitchen, you were a kitchen doing what I'm told, like, you know, um, just completely um, absolved myself of any uh, leadership or responsibility or credit. Well, this, you've given us a couple, you gave me a couple of neat segues into what we're going to talk about today, um, which is the um, uh, the media during the general election and matters related. Um, when you mentioned that your desire to innovate in an exciting way was rejected by, I did wonder where these. <laughs> what these well, like, the, firstly, the idea that you were you your your desire for innovation was was vetoed by more conservative elements in your somewhat about the analogy is playing out here so but the also were like the the food. You, were kind of, you were just mindlessly doing what you were told <laughs> it's an interesting kind of reflection on the role of the membership during the election as well yeah. yeah i mean i i do tend to do that politically as well um well i think there's a, you know there's definitely a place for it um it is important um that people you know march in the same direction when it when when it comes to it but i think we Hopefully we can too talk. many too many chefs do um well this you know it's almost it's almost proverbial wisdom isn't it tom that too many it's, chefs this is now a home of just idioms and and general <laughs> common sense <laughs> um, <laughs> and like spurious analogies which we're going to be applying to the media but um but during the campaign i think it's fair to say that the media itself and its conduct became much more salient than it had even been in 2017. And I think it's worth sort of reflecting on on why that was. Um, I, I mean, my, my own view is that in 2017, Labour kind of got away with it as far as the media were concerned. Um, firstly, because I think that they were Labour wrong footed the media through the, the, the relative popularity of their pl- platform. I think a lot of journalists were, were, as it were, getting high on their own supply and didn't realise that actually much of the country isn't averse to the idea of nationalisation, for example, or isn't averse to democratising the economy. So a lot of the things they thought would be um, minefields for Labour turned out not to be. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that happened, I think, in 2017 is that Labour massively um, adapted to and, and took full advantage of Facebook, and we talked about it just after 2017, we talked a bit about Labour's use of new technology. Um, And this time around, uh, Facebook in particular, I think, was gained much more effectively by the right. Um, And it seems that Momentum's approach um, was less effective this time around. now we don't we don't have hard and fast data on that, but my suspicion is that the algorithms were no longer quite as welcoming 
to the kind of content they were producing um, and perhaps were tending to favour um, paid for content over organic content in a way that benefited the right. Yeah. Um, I guess we know, won't we? I mean, we, we, Dan and I were talking about this yesterday um, and yeah, we're we soon enough, but that, that was kind of my feeling was that, yeah, the, the interesting like my hunch is the same as yours and I think as you say we're, we're going to know when um, more data becomes available and luckily social scientists are absolutely obsessed with fake news and Facebook and all of the rest of it so there's going to be heaps and heaps of papers um, analysing their data so I think that's probably right I, I mean and then <clears throat> the other thing is that I'd be interested to know you know what how much of it was paid advertising but also you know, what other groups were involved in distributing messages about Corbynism that had general pickup? I mean, there was one particular piece which was in The Guardian, which was suggesting there was a strong sort of um, organic pickup of like fake news and inaccurate reporting. And there was that one as well, wasn't there, about um, Tory advertising, which was found that 88% of it or something was completely inaccurate. So we had a tsunami of lies online, I would suspect. Yeah. But then the other thing is that the media, sorry, the press at least, were were much more negative than they were in 2017. I mean, Loughborough did a study while the election campaign was underway, and they found that, com- you know, compared to 2019, it was like the, the press were like three times more hostile or something crazy. Um, so, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't even a like for like for the press. And I think to a certain extent, you know that that must have quite sh- shaken them 2017 because obviously no one was expecting as you say like they were so again it's just a sense but I, I sort of feel like they in 2017 they felt like they could just like give labor enough rope to hang itself and um you know that strategy didn't work and then in this case i think in a way they had sort of been on a kind of anti-labor footing let's say for you know for years now and it was a kind of like play the hits but like just go kind of mad on them so like yeah. in one week i think like loughborough they they took like the different articles and then again like quite a crude kind of um coding framework based on whether they were like mostly negative or neutral or mostly positive about each particular party and over the whole of the election campaign Labour had a net evaluation figure of, of minus 109 which means that that means that for every largely positive article that's published by on Labour in the press there are over a hundred negative mostly negative articles I mean that's just completely nuts and yeah. um, in the last in the last week that it went up to minus 133 and so and all of that was that that was twice more than twice as hostile by the same measures as what the press was doing in in 2017. So I think, and at the same time, it was much less negative reporting of the Conservatives. So you know that that's the other thing. Like they they just went they just went much stronger. I mean, I'd be interested to see like some assessment of um, the broadcast media as well because Loughborough didn't do any kind of analysis of how sort of you've got to do that slightly differently because obviously the broadcasters aren't overtly negative so it's more to do with like you know what were the issues and you know how was the framing taking place and this sorts of thing but i guess we're going to see some literature out on that as well i mean yeah one of the one of the the sort of themes as it were beforehand was the idea that oh well once, once broadcast rules kick in um labor will be able to claw back some of its um polling disadvantage which appeared to be, I mean, that's part of the diagnosis or the explanation of Labour's relative success in 2017. And that yeah. really didn't, um, that really didn't seem to happen um, this time around. Um, quite the contrary. I mean, a lot, a lot of the commentary um, around broadcasting was much more critical. Um, and there's, you know, there's quite a lot of pretty objective evidence that, um, the Conservatives were being, you know, wildly disproportionate in their treatment um, of the Conservatives as against Labour. Yeah. Um, so, yes, so the conduct of the media, I think, became an issue in this election to a degree that I've never really seen before. 
certainly in recent years. Yeah. There was a great deal of talk about the power of the tabloid press in the early 90s, particularly around the 92 defeat of Labour, an election that Labour widely expected to win, um, but that that Major narrowly won with, with, you know, full-throated backing from from Murdoch. Um, But after 2017, there was a sense, I think, that a combination of new media and a mobilised membership would be enough uh, to counteract uh, the power of the right-wing press. And I suppose one could say the reluctance of broadcasters um, to challenge right-wing claims um, robustly. Um, And that was the that was what we went into the election with, I think, was a sense that we yeah. we were good at um, the online game and that we would be able to put people on the streets. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, we we tested that proposition, I guess. Um, and there's a much broader debate, which I wouldn't pretend to have any great insight into about the role that Brexit played, um, the the <coughs> personal deficiencies or otherwise of Corbyn as a, a kind of avatar for leadership um, but certainly my sense is that um, we weren't able to replicate the success online and this huge mobilization um, didn't lead to um, the the sort of game-changing effect on public opinion that I think um, we had hoped for. Yeah I mean I think it's an interesting question actually just to just quickly on the on the ground game at least i mean should be something which you should be able to measure relatively accurately if you had momentums statistics on how many people were canvassing in which areas because they know um who was going where right mm-hmm. now if you do that and you can compare changes in relative changes in the vote share and control for some other demographic factors it should be you should be able to determine roughly how effective um, a ground game was relative to other factors. I mean, obviously you can't disaggregate everything, but I think we should know soon enough whether Labour were completely um, misguided in putting their faith in the idea of like, you know, the the much talked about ground game or whether in actual fact Labour was starting from a position where it simply wasn't possible to catch up. In other words, if we didn't have the ground game, things would have been even worse. Like, you know, it would have been an absolute yeah. catastrophe. I mean, yeah. I, you know, part of the problem is that uh, you're, you're judging after an election whether and where you were able to get over a line, but in a way that doesn't really tell you very much about the underlining causal factors, you know, because obviously that depends on where the vote share was in the first place and what the other you know, the result of other shifts to do with the makeup of constituencies and the rest of it. So I'd be very interested to know where, yeah, some statistics on on how effective that was in terms of like our Facebook game. I mean, I think, you know, like the, I should say Labour's rather than ours, but I'm a Labour member, so there you go. Um, the, uh, I think, you know, the, the content was pretty good, I think. It was as good as last time. What we didn't, I suppose, have was the same sort of, we didn't have videos which were also making the news of like a, of an actual buzz in the country in a way that you had in 2017. Yeah. And again, I guess this question will come back to that. You know, we know when we know it, right? Like we were saying earlier about the Facebook yeah. game. I mean, the, the um, difficulty is, of course, is that there's, there are so many factors in play um, <coughs> and, and many of them are debatable or obscure. Um, so it's very hard to know um, how much relative weight to put on on each of these factors i guess my concern is always that media treatment of labor as a factor always ends up being sort of noticed and then forgotten yeah um so you have a oh isn't it a shame that the the media are sort of relentlessly hostile to labor um but anyway let's talk about something else let's talk about getting a more media friendly leader um let's talk about community organizing or, or something that we we're comfortable talking about rather than saying well given that this is what's happened to us and this was a factor in our defeat what are we going to practically what practically can we do about it Mm. Um, and i really you know i really do wish that we would we could hear more from the leadership candidates about what they propose to do given that as we've you know i've discussed often on the podcast you know we are going through a major change in the political economy of 
of media and communications. The kinds of things that would have been prohibitively expensive in the 1950s are now trivially easy to do. You can actually create deliberate deliberative spaces online um, that are would you know would have been hugely difficult to to replicate in in a, a sort of pre-digital era. And so to not talk about this, to not talk about the Labour Party as a deliberative space or potentially as a as a deliberative space, I think is a is a is a it could be a tremendous wasted opportunity because you know my my overwhelming feeling on December the twelfth, you know, when the exit polls came in, was to think, look, we just can't go through this again. We can't do this again. We can't be in a situation where whatever we're doing as camp you know campaigners in a six week period it's we're pushing against a tide that is that is coming from national media organizations that we have absolutely no purchase on you know i mean the fact is that was a brexit election because the media said it was they relentlessly told us it was all about brexit and i guess worth adding to that dan that you know there wouldn't have been a fucking brexit situation if it weren't for the right-wing press campaigning for it as well yeah exactly i mean not not to not to let the tories off the hook because you know they're obviously part of the same class forces um i mean the tabloids and the tories aligned with them um you know that that part well, there's of the, a really interesting yeah, there's a really interesting sidebar you know that you know some of the pro-remain <coughs> tories were absolutely horrified when they were sending press releases to the daily mail and the sun and so on and they weren't getting any pickup during the brexit referendum campaign and they they, mm. they thought they were geniuses because everything they said would be reproduced in the right-wing media normally yeah. but when they were saying something that murdoch and and rothermere or whoever didn't want to they didn't want to sort of relay they were suddenly silenced and they were completely amazed that, that this was happening to them they had they'd never yeah. experienced it before and that isn't so the natural terrain of the right is to have you know complete access to the main avenues of intelligence and and <coughs> normal conditions for us is to be almost completely shut out of those avenues and so yeah. we uh, it's no uh, just it's no good it seems to me to keep to sort of accept that as a sort of natural condition and just say well you know them's the breaks um we have to change this we have to change the the balance of forces in in the communicative sphere um which leads us i think we can talk a bit, I think, and we should talk a bit about um, Labour's sort of proposals for the media um, in their manifesto. Now, mm. the manifesto has been widely attacked for being um, essentially too much of a good thing. Um, the feeling is that the, the manifesto worked very well in 2017 in shifting the debate. And the calculation was, well, maybe if we do a sequel, which is like the original, but with even more special effects, maybe that will, you know, maybe that will suffice. And the the manifesto is being blamed, I think, completely unfairly um, for what happened, partly, again, because of this desire to ignore um, the impact of media coverage and to to look, as it were, in a self-flagellating way of things we did wrong. Right. I can completely imagine us winning with that manifesto in different circumstances. Um, but because we lost, that manifesto has now become an albatross um, to hang around the neck. I, I think, you know, there, there are different questions here, right? Like, well, one point which I think is, is fine and can be well made is that the, the, it didn't as a man, the manifesto didn't hang together that well and i think that's that's you know that's a valid criticism right the but that aside the criticism that's basically coming from the labor right and i think from the sort of you know the, the commentary and the mainstream media is that this manifesto itself is the problem is it's you know what do they call it like i was did laura kunzo call it a um a wish list for to santa claus or something um, oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, that, and, that was... and then I think the Tory manifesto was described as a cyclopedia of ambition or something. Yeah. Um, anyway. Mean, um, but but I mean, just as a sidebar on, I think, on the news quiz the day after the election, um, the lead, sort of lead joke was uh, the 1983 manifesto is no longer the longest suicide note in history. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, the, the fix was in on the idea that this was pie in the sky. Yeah, it's, just, um, it's pretty transparent what's going on here. I mean, like basically, the left 
suffered a shattering defeat. And then the 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 reason has to be that it's because the left is putting forward left wing policies. Yeah. And of course, the problem with that is there's no evidence to say that people don't don't support these policies. I mean, on the contrary, the evidence is very good that all of the policies are supported. And even the broadband one that seems to be the big talking point of the um, mainstream commentators was shown to be very popular. Yeah. There's just the disconnect in the political system. And, you know, this is something we've both been talking about for a long, long time between what people's actual policy preferences are and what the outcomes are of the political system, which is itself, you know, this this touches on the very basis of do we have a functional democracy in this country? And you just can't answer that question without talking about the media and about how um, the community structures are arranged, how policies get presented, what happens in a political system and so on and so forth. But fundamentally, of course, like people who do not want left wing policies are going to say that Labour lost because of left wing policies. Now, the, I mean, we don't know a lot yet because we don't have enough evidence, but we don't just know straight out and immediately that that's not the case. Um, yeah. I mean, this is the funny thing about all these commentators, you know, like, we can sit here and be sort of um, circumscript and humble about what we know and we don't know. And it's certainly not something that anyone in in authoritative circles seems to be capable of because they seem to be able to just wheel out a line which is just plainly, <laughs> plainly false. <laughs> it just becomes, it becomes the line, right? Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, that's what's going on here. And people on the left should have, should have absolutely no time for this. If, if, if people are, you know, the, the mainstream are just going to lie, of course they're going to lie, lie about these things because that, that's, you know, it's in their interest to do so. It's, it's obvious that the, um, from polling data that these, are, that these are popular policies. I think the only question around the manifesto is one of sort of presentation. But I, I think in a way, I mean, and I've said this online, I think part of the problem for the left was that, uh, after 2017 was that no one was really sure how how 2017 was pulled off right yeah um, no one really figured out how that happened because it's never happened before um and you know the ob- one obvious point is that the policies were popular and they'd never really been put to the electorate in quite the same way in quite the same sort of political moment so labor rightly calculated that we need radical policies that these are popular and we can see that from the polling um they also said okay you know we've got um polling seems to be inaccurate so we don't need to worry too much about that um we had a very effective ground game we've got this online situation now all the things we've discussed already but the truth is that no one was really sure where any of this fitted in and you can see with the weight that labor put on its manifesto this time round that the 2017 manifesto you know it was like one of the kind of you know, it was like the star of the 2017 campaign. And the desire was that the 2019 manifesto would perform the same sort of function yeah. as the campaign, yeah. which just didn't, it just didn't seem to. Um, you know, it, I, I think going back to the, the the role of the media, I mean, you know, we already know, we, we I mean, we know that people have inaccurate views on, on, um, on the Labour Party. I mean, to take that bad news um, study on Labour, which uh, Greg Feiler led, looking at perceptions of anti-Semitism in the party. If you ask the public in polling and focus groups, how many, what percentage of the membership have been disciplined for anti-Semitism? They say 30%. Mm-hmm. If you look at the actual figures that we have, it's 0.08%. You know, this is just, you know, you, you just can't account for that level of difference without taking into account um, systemic misreporting yeah. from the media institutions so you know I, I completely understand why people who uh you know don't want to simply blame the media for what happened um because the media is like one obviously one particular factor but the truth is like you know to take that out of the picture i just think you know it just seems nuts to me absolutely nuts yeah um and it's true as well that the the manifesto although it it, it covered a lot of bases it didn't set out an agenda for media reform yeah sorry i went on a massive tangent there no no i think it's important i think it's important tangent to to go on yeah that's true you know um there there wasn't really um anything in there on i mean there was was nothing on the bbc basically nothing nothing on the bbc and the (laughs) it was striking wasn't it that the conservative manifesto had this sort of sort of slightly threatening tone towards um the BBC um, and also sort of opened the door to you know broad and sweeping changes to the structure of the state and so on I mean there was a sort of general very vague clause 
presumably Dominic Cummings had put in about how they were going to review all state constitutional practices and so on. And by comparison, you know, Labour seemed to be relatively <coughs> gloved. Um, yeah. And I wonder whether some of that was down to media framing of any criticism of the media as as sort of Trumpian populism. Oh, no doubt, Dan. Absolutely no doubt. And the thing is, like, the right doesn't give a flying fuck, you know, if people say that about them. And the thing is, like, okay, these are particular sort of interests and bugbears of ours, let's say, the structure of the media and the state, right? Mm -hmm. But think about the striking comparison between the way the Conservatives have approached the media and the state, I mean, OK, approach the media. I mean, they fucking own it. But like, yeah. I mean, the bits of the media that they don't directly control. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the broadcast media, they, you know, they, they just they just don't give a shit. Um, no, and actually, they, yeah. partly because they don't get attacked by, uh, you know, the, the, the press and the rest of the the rest of the media for i mean not much anyway for going after the media but look at the the authoritarianism on display like during the camp and after the campaign from boris johnson you know towards um channel four and towards the bbc and then what do we get from labor in its manifesto you know a labor government will ensure a healthy future for all our public service broadcasters and that's it yeah you know and you know if you compare that really to the the sort of the ambition of the Benite left, say, in the 1970s, where they really did talk tough about, like, restructuring restructuring the media and the state. And, you know, obviously conditions weren't sort of there for, for that project, although maybe, you know, we can talk about counterfactuals or whatever, but at least the ambition was there. Um, you know, we had we had nothing in that manifesto um, on, on media from really. I mean, we, we, you know, there, there was the usual stuff, which is, it was, it's all well and good. And I was support, um, you know, around like, um, Ofcom and, uh, Leveson and the rest of it. But this is, this, that's Lib Dem territory, really. Yeah. There's very little in there on, on the media at all. And what there was, as you say, was, was sort of informed by centrist common sense rather than any democratizing ambition for the media. And it made, in a sense, I think this is a point that you made. I mean, it, like, it would have been good, I think, for Labour in the campaign to be able to point at the fact that they w- they were willing to countenance democratic reform of the media, to, uh, you know, as a foil to the fact they were being constantly <laughs> misrepresented and attacked um, yeah. by the by the broadcasters. Um, I mean, I suppose part of the problem is that, and this is a this is this is a, perhaps a more general point that one could make about about the way policy was presented by Labour is that when we talk about democratic media you and I and a handful of other people who we talk to and who listen to this podcast um, understand that we're not simply talking about like voting for journalists or voting for you know for the director general of the BBC through a popular website and so on like democratization means a great deal more than that um and in its heart, it means actually something different from some sort of simple ele- electoral system. But if you said, if you said to the average person in the street, well, what you know, when you, right, for example, when you talk about democratizing the economy, do you mean electing the heads of businesses, right? Um, or when you talk about democratizing the media, do you, do you mean like electing journalists? Um, and we haven't really had a chance to sort of embed or to have a discussion with people about what a democratic media system might look like Mm. most people don't really know what the term means um and that i think is a that is a a big problem um because if when if people don't understand i mean setting aside the media for a minute if people don't understand what you mean by a democratic economy um then they're going to they're going to end up being susceptible to right wing messaging that oh when they say demo- democratizing the economy they mean like in the democratic you know the people's democratic republic of germany where the state runs everything um we we just haven't reached that level of general comprehension i think around um some of these key ideas and I, and that goes double for for the media because i think there's been so little public conversation about the media for for obvious reasons that the media don't like being talked about in t- in terms they can't really understand or control. 
Yeah, but also that they just, yeah, they, they just don't want to talk about it in that way, do they? I mean, we, we were talking about this before we came on air that, you know, most of the, obviously, like the, the media establishment don't want to talk about um, fundamental change, but also um, people who work in the media who tend to have larger um, sort of voices, I suppose, um, on the left. Obviously, it's much more difficult for them as well to talk about the structure of the institutions that, that they work in and which they're dependent on for a living. So there's, there's sort of different sections that are left that don't think about the media as part of, um, you know, class power, if you like. Um, there are those who tend to have a more economistic kind of account who see the media as being sort of, you know, that's like that's like the superstructure. And, uh, you know, the real action is that. Uh, um, you know, people's workplaces and their material conditions of living and the rest of it. And then there are people who sort of say, yeah, strategically, we just take the media as like a given. Like we all accept that the media is the enemy and we just, that's why we don't talk about it, you know. But I mean, to be crude, I think if you work in the media, um, it's just much more difficult to talk about it. I mean, look what happens to Owen Jones when he mentions, when he talks about the media. I mean, yeah. fuck me. Yeah. It's just unbelievable the amount of um, the yeah. amount of abuse that he gets. And is there anybody else who does that, really? I mean, not, I don't think so. I think he's probably the only, the, you know, there, there aren't that many left journalists, you know, like credit. I mean, he's got some guts. Like um, He really does, yeah. Going on like he does. does. And as and, you say, you know, it's ironic that, People talk a great deal about about the workplace, but like how exposed and vulnerable would someone like him be in a, in a workplace like The Guardian if he turns around and says, yeah, The Guardian isn't isn't all that great in some ways. Um, it's quite interesting, actually. I don't know if you sort of noticed this, um, but I think The Guardian's coming for a little bit more flack as well. Like, so, I mean, one of the things with the, I mean, keeping the discussion sort of to attitudes on the left, I mean, I think it's been a very, very clarifying moment for people with the BBC and the way that it's conducted itself in the election. I mean, if people are interested, if you just forgive me a little bit of self-promotion, like I wrote a piece during the campaign for Jacobin um, discussing the BBC and its future, which lays out some of the sort of um, unfortunate errors, let's say, that were made by the BBC. But I mean, we, we, I guess we should come to the BBC in a bit, shouldn't we, just briefly, but because I'd probably be talking about that in other places as well. And I don't imagine people want to hear me go on and on about it. Um, but it's interesting with The Guardian and also The New Statesman, you know, as being the sort of leading kind of left wing outlets, I guess. I guess. Like this, The New Statesman came out saying, don't vote for Labour just before <laughs> the election. Did you see that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was just like, you know, what the actual fuck? Like, it's supposed to be like a sort of it's supposed to be like a, a, a Labour left sort of publication. I mean, I know it's all over the place politically, but it seems to oscillate between like Fabianism, Stalinism and sort of somewhere between New Labour. And I mean, Christ knows what's going on now. Have we ever done a thing on the New Statesman? I think we did, didn't we? With um, Joe we did Kennedy. an episode about it. Yeah, we did. Um, we talked about it with Joe Kennedy, I think. Yeah, we did. Oh, yeah. So if anyone's new to the podcast or relatively new, go back and um, listen to our uh episode with joe kennedy but anyway the new statesman i think <laughs> we sort of pronounced his death probably on that podcast a little bit harshly because after that it took a sort of it kind of took a left turn didn't it and then there were some very weird goings on there with uh jason cowley it is jason isn't it it is yeah yeah, yeah jason yeah. cowley um sort of who is kind of a blue labor sympathizer so for people who aren't familiar with this the sort of socially conservative sort of wing of of laborism and people who argued that in the aftermath of the 2008 crash you know the problem with neoliberalism was essentially that it erodes um you know families and sort of um sense of local community and so on but you know that that part of which is true and that therefore the the opposition from labor has to be as a sort of appeal appeal to like pride and patriotism and the rest of it but anyway he's sort of in with with that lot and he publicly said you know don't back corbyn um and you know how ridiculous but then i also saw like on the guardian did you see that david graber has started slagging off the guardian very publicly saying he's not going to write for it anymore because it's like fake left media or something yeah i did see him that yeah he did sort of take yeah he's taken up he's taken up against them in a in a very public way which again like to stress like as with you know peter Ogorn is slightly, slightly different in that he was working you know he's a working newspaper man as it were 
Um, when he took up against um, the Telegraph, he was that he basically had to leave. When he took up against the, the Mail, he had to leave. Right, he he's no longer working at, at either, you know, at, at a national newspaper. Actually, do you know, with the Mail, it was even funnier because he was basically taking up against the BBC, so the Mail fired him. Right, right. Um, so it was like basically he he took up against some of the leading political journalists, and the Mail were like, uh, "Yeah, you can leave now. Sorry, you can do BBC bashing, but not on that basis." Like no, exactly. the line that the BBC is too close to the government is not acceptable. Wrong, uh, wrong kind of BBC bashing. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, for a for a left, left intellectual to take up against um, the Guardian in the way that Graeber has is basically. I mean, that's like being a public intellectual, as it were, without without access to the centre left press is almost a contradiction in terms. Like you can't really be public if you don't have any means to to to, to secure publicity um so it, it is a it's an extremely it's an extreme move to make isn't it as um it is, yeah as any sort and, you know he's an anarchist so well right he is and you know <clears throat> you know all, all power to him for for sort of taking that position but i think like it, it's a it's a you know it's to to take a phrase from the obama era it's a sort of teachable moment isn't it it's like why you know why don't intellectuals talk about the media right why don't they even think about the media in any kind of sustained way well the answer is if they do then they they cease to be public right i mean that's the those are the stakes and i think it's really it's it's extremely urgent i think for bystanders you know you know people who are consumers of media or people who are sort of um not in not involved in it as it were professionally to really take stock of the implications of this right like it's like there's an invisible planet and it and it exerts a gravitational field in in the in the as it were the the sort of in public discourse like it, it has a gravitational pull um but it can't be seen no one will describe it because if they do then they're no longer in, they're no longer sort of part of the game um and I, I, like it's very hard, I think. People get the idea of totalitarian power, like the idea that, oh, if you say this, you'll be arrested and carted off to jail. I think it's much more difficult to grasp that most people won't. They won't say things, even if it like, carries with it a very slight risk of being slightly less um, bookable, or slightly less um, commissionable, if you like. Right. People, people who who prosper are people who do not take those sorts of risks. This is why, basically, you know, a, a liberal model of understanding the media is, is so limited because it's based on a certain idea of human freedom, which is based on people stopping you, actively stopping you from doing or or saying something in a much more direct way. Um, and you know, what, to 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 sort of clumsily reach for another analogy, you know, you, you're talking about action for a dis- from a distance here, aren't you? If you if you start to think sociologically about these kind of institutions and how they create different types of structures of incentives, like mm-hmm. there, you know, there, there's a different thing going on. And yeah. it's very difficult, I think, for for journalists and probably for most people, actually, to to recognise that as as an impediment to human freedom, because, yeah. partly because of the way that, you know, liberal understandings of of freedom of speech and of power have become yeah. quite sort of, you know, embedded in how we think about these things. But I think more than that, you know, there's a sort of willing embrace of like the, this sort of fallacy that no one tells me what to what to write you know which turns out to be complete bollocks on the, on any kind of in, of empirical inspection and we talked about this a lot on the show yeah, uh, yeah. i mean there's an analogy isn't there with physics <coughs> where um there like there's a whole set of things going on in in the physical world that if you describe them it's just sound completely barking mad right there's sort of spooky action at a distance and so on like yeah you know quantum effects um if you say to people you know what you your actions might not simply be determined by whether a policeman's going to hit you on the head with a truncheon right there might be there might be other there might be other forces in play like concerns about preferment concerns about remaining socially viable in a given context and so on then they're immediately going to start screaming about conspiracy theories because it's like you're just as you say you're describing sort of the operation of things that aren't like manifest and you know like almost mechanical in their nature 
Well, I think, it, you know, it, it's it's unnerving for people to have to reflect on some of these things. But I mean, it is, you know, I mean, it's just basic sociology, really. Like, you know, it's, a, it's about conformity to norms, isn't it? And it really shouldn't be that difficult for for people to grasp. And, you know, it, it does bring me and I, I won't go on and on about this because I have everywhere um, about the BBC's response to criticisms of its reporting, which were just universally by dismissed by every you know deadweight bigwig at the BBC as um, conspiracy theory and it was simply because they decided to take accusations of you know bias basically as being an allegation of of, of a conscious effort to undermine the Labour Party. Now I I think that's probably a combination of stupidity and bad faith and we can only guess as to which one it is really. Yeah. you know, it is, it's kind of infuriating because, yeah. like, okay, I don't expect, like, you know, you would expect people who are paid, like, £200,000 to have some sort of grasp of, like, sociology or, or, or some sort of pop sociology, which should allow them to get a sense that maybe, like, organisations and institutions are a thing, you know? Yeah, but, uh, you know, that's the, that's the key point, isn't it? It's like, you don't, you don't get to earn the big bucks until you are, unless you are willing to describe basic sociology as conspiracy theory, <laughs> you know, That's unless true. you're willing to, and willing to like humiliate yourself with the most obtuse lines as well, like publicly. Yeah, I mean, yeah. God. No, and I do, I, you know, I, I think it's, you know, we, we've talked, we've talked about, as it were, the category of conspiracy theory a lot, and you're right. I think you're absolutely right to sort of tie it to liberal literalism about about freedom and about as it were, so, social coercion and so on. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, there there is this. There, uh, I mean, as a sidebar, I mean, the only successful materialist project um, of the of the early Enlightenment is is Hobbes's, de- you know, attempt to sort of establish a materialist conception of liberty. Um, in physics, it, it is completely destroyed by the discovery or the the acceptance of of gravity. Um, uh, and physics has moved on and made huge leaps and bounds. Political theory is, is, is in some ways just been in a morass ever since, <laughs> because every time you talk about something you can't see, anything that isn't, as it were, a policeman, a policeman's truncheon, um, people call you a conspiracy theorist. Mm. Um, and it, it it completely stultifies discussion of the social world because we can't, well, as it were, why Dan, like but people on the left should spend their time reading sociology instead of social theory. And I've long said it, but um, not that social theory doesn't have a place, or let's say political theory. But you know, I I do think that like to some extent it does. Well, I suppose it's sort of. I guess these people must be sort of inculcated via PPE and stuff like that. Do you think, like the people at the BBC? I mean, not not the left. I where, do you, where, where do you learn to think like that? I don't know. I think um, my guess is that the that's a really good question about, and I someone who's interested in elite formation should do a study of BBC top management. Tom. <laughs> um, but my guess is that a lot of it, a lot of them will have had a literary education <clears throat> rather than. Um, PPE um but if you know if PPE is in the frame then certainly um it will have it will have inculcated in them a, a, a kind of liberal conception of um of the social sphere and yeah I mean you you come out of PPE knowing literally nothing about sociology so I just looked up um Tony Hall is the um person I was referring to although there are lots and started wheeling out this line and he is indeed ppe is he Oxford. yeah yeah i mean cambridge i mean as a sidebar i mean cambridge is you're much more likely to come away with some grasp of basic social science if you go to cambridge like um you will learn about people like max weber and so on but do they do ppe at cambridge no they don't they do um I can't remember what it's called, but it is uh, a friend of mine did it and they do study, you know, the, the kind of founding um, uh, figures in sociology. Um, yeah. Whereas I think, you know, for example, to study Marx at Oxford, you have to do geography. I think I don't think that uh, PPE uh, gives you any kind of um, there's, there's nothing about Marx, there's nothing about Weber, there's nothing about um, any any of the kind of s- social scientists in um 
in either the politics or philosophy elements of PPE. As, as far as I know, um, that is the case. Um, well, I imagine we have a lot of PPE listeners, so um, do get in touch with us. They can t- tell us more about that. Yeah, let us know. Um, I'm not but, being sarcastic. I'm, I'm gen- PPE is, has been an enduring fascination for me. And because I, I remember when I was first doing um, my research on the BBC, I noticed how many people have studied PPE. And then when I was looking into it, like, there actually there was hardly any literature on it. I mean, and since then, there's been a few sort of interesting Guardian articles and long reads and that kind of thing as to the influence of PPE. But I think that was like maybe one or two at that time. And what was weird about it was it was very widely acknowledged as being a significant thing amongst the British sort of upper yeah. classes and, and the elites and everything. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it still hadn't been examined very much. So it has been. Well, I mean, I think it is an indefensible combination of things right because my understanding is that it is the like the it's a mixture of political science um basically analytical philosophy um and um liberal microeconomics yeah um and it is like like there is no attempt to cohere these elements they are completely um disconnected from one another (laughs) as as it were a modular course um like most of the humanities courses it it sort of takes its bearings from um classics it's an attempt to update classics and i think you can see like in things like um (coughs) logic and in all that kind of mathematics associated with with micro um micro economics is an attempt to create a kind of um a sense of being part of um uh, a, a, a group of people who have access to esoteric knowledge mm. that you understand the economy because you understand uh, the tenets of microeconomics in a way that the the rubes um out there in the world don't and, and it gives you it's a sort of training in confidence in a way it's like i'm really good at these these technical exercises that most people don't have any clue about and therefore i should go and run companies or therefore i should go and be um an important public administrator or whatever happens to be um but if you look at the actual curriculum itself as i say like if if you like if you thought that studying politics might mean that you would come away um with a working knowledge of you know like major political thinkers well then you'd be wrong (laughs) that's not that's not what PPE does. My yeah. recollection, and it is out of date and it may well change, but the the political bit of, of PPE is, is a kind of political science. So they do, you know, they do country analyses. They look at the political systems of countries and so on. Um, but they don't actually deal with anything like political theory um, in, a, in, a, in a, any sort of grown up way. Mm. Um, now that may be a slander on PPE, but um, given the state of the country, uh, they deserve everything they get. Um, now we are at 48 minutes, um, and I would like to very quickly before we finish talk um, about options for Labour um, coming out of the election. Um, again, this is you know this is slightly um, off piste for us as media democracy, but I do want to talk a bit about how we respond to um, the current media environment in Labour and more broadly. It seems to me there are two. There are two options. We can either go for a um, an open or implicit strategy of centrist accommodation with the media that exist, and that would that would mean things like finding a um, a good performer, someone who can stand up and and operate in the media more slickly uh, than Corbyn was able to do, or more slickly than Ed Miliband was able to do. And the other option, which I think is the correct option, just to let the cat out of the bag, is to democratise the Labour Party and turn it into a communicative space much more fully in its own right. Um, And the reason why the former option I don't think will work is that unless we go too significantly to the right um, and are able to pitch to the nation uh, when the Conservatives are completely exhausted, as in 1997, I don't think there's any leader that will escape the kind of treatment that Corbyn received. I think we just have to look back, as, you know, to the dim and distant past of Ed Miliband and Gordon Brown to see that being a moderate or being an attempting to 
appear sensible and realistic is absolutely no defence or against accusations of being a communist, accusations of being an anti-Semite, or accusations of God knows what. Um, the, whoever is the leader of the Labour Party, as long as they're willing to challenge um, the the mainsprings of right-wing power in any significant way, then they're going to be monstered by the media. And that just seems to me. Um, yeah, and I think the more you challenge, the I, I think it changes in degree, doesn't it? So the more of a threat that you pose to um, the right, the the more monsters you get, basically. So that that that's something which you can put into the mix. So like the temptation for a lot of people is, if we move slightly to the right, would we be monsters slightly less and therefore increase our chances enough to get into power? That that's kind of the calculation I think that people instinctively go for. Um, but then it kind of <laughs> you just got to think back, as you say, to like Gordon Brown to think just how far to the left you need to go before you get like monstered by Murdoch. And it's basically as far as Gordon Brown, who to be to be fair to him, um, and I'm no fan of Gordon Brown, after 2008 did move back towards something like centrism, didn't he? After occupying a sort of, you know, basically a Blair, right? I, I mean, I think for all intents and purposes was indistinguishable policy-wise to Blair, um, you know, did move back towards a sort of broadly centrist kind of orientation, I think, um, and just got absolutely brutally attacked. Um, yeah. And people forget how how much he was attacked. I think, I guess the difference is that in that case, you know, The Guardian and the BBC weren't echoing the smears to quite the same degree as you had with Corbyn, because you know, which maybe that makes it viable, maybe it doesn't, but it depends on who you're trying to reach, I don't know. But I agree, like, basically, if you don't want to be monstered by the media, you just have to be right wing. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. and I think, you know, again, in terms of, like, if you move towards the centre, then maybe uh, maybe you get a slightly less um, condescending or aggressive treatment from the broadcasters, say, right? So you get, you know, you get fewer BBC journalists saying, asking if you're going to nationalise sausages or whatever. Um, but at the same time, you will demobilise potential and actual supporters. So, so you know, one of the, you know, one of the, the key things about, you know, looking back at Miliband and um, well, Miliband in particular, I think, is, you know, he just didn't he didn't excite people. Because he was always, you know, he, there was a sense that he was tri- triangulating. He was trying to keep on side. You remember there was that terrible picture of him posing with the sun. And it was like, you, ca- you know, you, ca- you can't do that if you want to inspire people. <coughs> things might change. Um, so, yeah. So to my mind, I think this is an opportunity for Labour to decide really if it, if it wants to win on its own terms how it's going to restructure the party so that it can dismantle right-wing propaganda um, in in real time um, and you know to, to make the uh, to make the as it were the communicative field less um, friendly to right-wing propaganda because you got we do have half a million members you know um, half a million members who are more or less interested in politics right who are more or less engaged in 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 politics and in the possibility of using politics to to achieve positive change in the world right now that is that's the potential for a you know a really kind of wide-ranging conversation about what, what politics could be for about what the you know what the challenges that you know that face us and how we might address them um as a sidebar there's an interesting article by um, Peter McCall, um, which we will put in the show notes possibly, um, but it was published in Open Democracy, talking about how um, we're no longer in an information scarce environment, and that you know it is actually possible to get very good information about what 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 collective preferences look like, um, and to develop a sh- sort of shared sense of what a political agenda might look like, and it's it's sort of it's unconscionable to me that a mass mass party like Labour doesn't take advantage of the technical resources that are now available to start developing a shared agenda that we can communicate more broadly and that can actually, you know, bluntly be used to, to recruit more members to the project. Um, 
we should yeah i mean the only thing i would add to that is that you know the the way that the party machine as it were has done it in the past is this is the sort of conference process isn't it so like the thing is with the labor 2019 manifesto is a lot of the good stuff there did come out of campaigns going to conference but part of the problem that you have is the sort of division you know if you think back to the beginning of Cor- of Corbynism as the sort of project if you like the the ambition there was to you know for Labour to look beyond itself to build relationships with social movements to democratize the party to have a bottom-up kind of agenda and that happened in obviously very uneven ways because you get an influx of membership usually to take it back to the analogy at the beginning uh you know soldiers who would be hope do what they're told and hope that momentum had the data and the propaganda to get labor over the line or would vote for particular candidates to try and advance the left agenda in the party what what that i think the left has never had over the, these few, last few years and it's partly because it's been under constant siege and people sort of forget that as you start to sit back and have sort of interesting analytical discussions as to how we ended up in particular situations is a capacity to build that sort of bottom-up power and it's not just about democratizing the party in terms of deselecting MPs as you know which tended to be the discussion on the left which I think absolutely we should do like I think you know you need to have a a positive way of um, the party itself forming its own systems of representation but also as you say the capacity to reach out and develop um, a communities and a constituency because you think about you know what what actually happened i think in the in a period of essentially perpetual crisis was that people were waiting to be able to rerun 2017 using the resources that everybody hoped to work the first time around and basically that meant you could knock on people's stores and have a two-minute conversation with them and try and hope that you could persuade them that what the bbc had been telling them for the last two years um was not a fair representation of labor's leadership or its program for government but if you think about it like that, I mean, it doesn't seem like it, the strategy is going to have a lot of chance of success. But of course, the, what people were thinking was, well, we did it in 2017. Why couldn't we do it in 2019? And I think that is the interesting question. But as you say, I don't think anyone would have sat down and said, actually, I think the best way for us to win an election would be for us to um, be constantly under siege for three years and then and then try and like flood the streets with people to go and knock on people's doors i mean obviously you know you want to be having political conversations and political um or struggles to be a bit old-fashioned about it over the course of a whole parliamentary period and i think that's so it absolutely is about communication and about building like you know um a constituency for social change but of course as you say it's like about developing an agenda for government it's about and also about uh, groups of people who are able to support each other and support that kind of agenda because i think it's worth people remembering that if the labor party had gone into government in uh gone into government last month um it would have been i think i honestly think it wouldn't have lasted a year like the government um because it would have been under absolutely relentless siege and I don't think had the really had the um, the uh, infrastructure to I mean like the social sort of infrastructure to support to support government in that yeah. way. I and mean, that's my view. I saw this tweet from um, a Mirror journalist sort of remarking that um, you know Labour was uh, facing you know faced like loads of opposition or something like Corbyn said. And she sort of commented that, oh, you know, if um, if Labour had got into government, it wouldn't have to be in opposition at all. And it's just like this, you know, this level of naivety that people, I mean, I don't think it's many people now, but people, some people still claim to have about what it would have been like if a Labour government had been formed. I mean, I think the failure of 2019, people, I know that's not really itself very cheery perspective, but people do need to remember that we weren't really facing the prospect of a, of a transformative socialist government. I don't think, um, I think it would have been very rapidly destabilised. Unfortunately, I think the situation that we're in now in terms of building the sort of transformative project that we need in the party, there's two things, like number one, the resources we have are not there, which they would have been for a short period if we had control of some of the infrastructure in the British state. And number two, the stakes are so high. I mean, 
in terms of climate change now, I mean, it's just frightening. You know, like uh, Australia's ablaze. Mm. Uh, we've lost in the UK. You know, for we we went with the most ambitious um, climate change policy, you know, ever um, yeah. in terms of the prospect with a prospect of forming a government, and we were crushed. And yeah. that means that internationally, you know, we are, you know, it's not just about you know, like you and I are socialists, and we have a particular idea of how we think society should be structured. But I mean, this is sort of it's nothing, not really anything to do with personal preference anymore. This is about the survival of yeah of of humanity really that's the kind of that, that that's the stakes and i think my my feeling at the moment politically is that and I, and i think from our conversations you're in a similar sort of place is that people shouldn't rush their judgment and 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 double down we need to be thinking about what could we do that would be generally transformative within the labor party because we we don't even have anything to double down on now we're not really um because after 2017 it was easy for people to turn around and say okay we, we've kind of got the willing formula we just need to give it another go um and i think the special circumstances of brexit will the temptation there will be to say because brexit was obviously so key right yeah. the temptation will be for people to say all right um you know brexit did it for us which i, I think to a certain extent it did or at least it did it, it was what led them to think was so bad um, the temptation will be for people to think, okay, if we regroup and we come back in more favourable circumstances, yeah. then we might win. Yeah. And I think if, if forgetting even what happened in two, last year, um, people just need to reflect on the lack of progress that was made in the party between 2017 and 2019 and think about, okay, how far did we get with the Labour Party to, mm -hmm. to be the sort of Labour Party that we think genuinely would be able to not only win elections, but transform society? And then think about, okay, uh, what 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 do we need to do to get there? Because my own view is that we didn't get very far between 2017 or 2016 and 2019. Um, people slog their guts out and everyone deserves a hell of a lot of credit for that. But mm. we've still got a long way to go. So, but we need to be smart about that and we need to be sort of thinking about where we want to get and how we're going to get there. I mean, that's that's my kind of mood, as it were. Yeah, I mean... I uh, you know, I, I I'm very much in accord on that. I mean, the thing on on the issue of Brexit, you do hear people saying, well, if we had a you know we had a more telegenic leader and we had the same agenda, and <clears throat> Brexit's no longer an issue. Um, there's always going to be a Brexit, right? I mean, Brexit was basically a hallucination cooked up by the right wing. Um, then in the next election, you can bet your life there will be another Brexit. It won't, probably won't be Brexit. It would be something equally ludicrous and hallucinatory. I suspect it would be something like a, a hard right response to the climate crisis. I think by the time we get to another four years, the Earth, I mean, we're at the brink of a fucking another Middle Eastern war, but the world's looking increasingly grim, right? Yeah. I think the next Brexit is going to be more like a fantasy of um, protect, protecting um the nation against international terminal and climate change yeah, ma ma mass migration i think you're right may well be um the the, the wedge issue that that becomes sort of politically active i mean in 2015 it was the idea that Miliband was going to be in the pocket of scottish nationalists um there was that famous poster of him in the pocket of alex salmond if you remember mm -hmm. um now it probably was that probably wasn't as significant but the fact is there's always going to be something. And because of their communicative power, they will make that something into a thing. They will make that into something that you and I are going to end up talking to people on the, on the fucking doorstep about. Well, like, you know, there was, a, you know, if it wasn't Brexit, you know, there was also anti-Semitism, right? Yeah. And, and they they rolled and, and, you know, Corbyn's a terrorist supporter or whatever. They rolled this stuff together. I mean, I, one thing I would say is it's not it's not immediately clear that we will, after May and Johnson, face such formidable conservative opposition in terms of being able to command popular support against the left. But that said, I mean, if you go back to 2015, you know, there was a conservative majority then, which people in 2015, um, and there was a concern, you know, we get a conservative, well, close to a conservative majority in, in the last election. There will be, as you say, an attempt, successful or not, by the right to 
to gather support around some sort of reactionary project which and reactionary projects uh, you know they by definition involve some element of fantasy some element of a large element of fantasy because that's what they are you know politically they have to tie the oligarchy to a broader swathe of the population in whose interest they do they do not act so by definition conservatism is a you know sociologically as like Phil Burton Cartledge puts it, a, a politically dishonest project. And I think, you know, the role of the press and the role of, you know, conservative propaganda, it's 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 a reflection of that of that structure. So something new will come out. I mean, Brexit was, you know, it, it was basically a product of those decades of lies coming from the tabloids and the conservatives, wasn't it, about the EU? I mean, that's, it, to put it very crudely, I mean, obviously, there was a lot more going on in terms of why people in particular conditions, places and ages and classes or whatever were particularly receptive to that message. But as you say, there will be something else, some other attempt um, to to lie and form broad coalitions against what is going to be in the next election, human survival. So um, it's about how do we build up a social capacity that's able to to take that on and that has to mean i think um a democratization of the labor party but also giving the labor party a communicative capacity which isn't dependent on the establishment media i mean that for me is the key thing yeah yeah i think that's a really good note to leave on um well we are in some senses um we come out of the euphoria of 2017 as a podcast i remember our conversations after may thinking well Maybe maybe we could talk about the media. Maybe we could talk about democratizing the media. Maybe there's a space to start building um, building the arguments for this. Um, and as you say, we've made some progress, not as much progress as we might have liked to have done. done. But we are now children of 2019. Tom, thank you as ever. And um, thank you for, very much for listening if you've made it to the end of our conversation. 